Hello and welcome to MusicCast. We've got a great show for you today with guests Dr. Jenny Smith and Dr. Robert McClure from Ohio University's School of Music. Today's episode will focus around music theory and why we connect to it. Thanks so much and I hope you enjoy. All right, our first guest today is going to be Dr. Jenny Smith. I'll let her introduce herself. So my name is Jenny Smith. I have been at Ohio University for about eight years. I teach music theory and aural skills, and um, I taught at several different schools before I came to OU, and I've had lots of different experiences teaching lots of different types of music theory. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so we'll move uh, right on into questions, and the first one is purposely general. Uh, and that is, what is music theory? What is music theory? Well, it's kind of how music works, uh, kind of the inner workings of a, a piece or a movement. It's the, the scales, the chords, the form, um, everything that kind of adds structure or flow to the music and helps us to understand and, and really connect with it more deeply. So this podcast is about on how people connect to music, and so I'm curious to see uh, ways that you recognize music theory impacting your connection to music and how you relate to songs. Sure. Well, I think the more that I can understand what makes a piece of music tick, the more meaningful it is to me. So, for example, um, I... If I understand what the chords are doing within the piece of music, then I can understand kind of what the composer's intent was with the mood or the character, and I can figure out when things follow my expectations and when they defy my expectations, and the the cool nuances that a composer puts into the piece. Cool. I know a lot of um, what music theory is concerned of or is concerned with is how consonants and dissonance kind of plays into a piece um, overall. And so how do you see consonants and dissonance being used in um, music across all genres, so not only like uh, classical pieces, but also current and pop music to kind of help evoke emotion and um, kind of circumvent different expectations that a listener might have? Sure. Uh, I kind of see consonants and dissonance as like tension and release. So dissonance is used to create tension or to create anticipation or expectation. And then the consonance provides that satisfying closure or point of rest or point of release. Um, And I see that across classical music and I see that across uh, popular music as well. Um, A lot of times if a lot of times the melody will be a little bit dissonant with the chords and then finally um, come to rest with the chords as well, which kind of gives us that sense of closure. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so then what different subcategories of music theory are there and how does each one play into music? Um, I was saying, I know there's like Western music theory and that mainly reveal, uh, revolves around music that we hear most commonly, but what different, um, I guess, types of theory are there? Well, it depends on what you mean. There are a lot of different types of theory. Uh, there, um, there's a specific, uh, there are specific theorists who research popular music, um, popular styles, and uh, and rock and video game music and all of that kind of stuff. 
And then there are other theorists who research kind of um, a reductive aspect of music. So uh, Shankarian analysis, which is what I focus on, um, and just kind of thinking about deeper connections within the piece that you might not be able to hear on the surface, but how the composer basically creates the bones of the piece and, and helps them to provide life to the to the piece of music and then there are narrative theories which uh, use terms and jargon to describe how the music tells a story Um, and there is there are lots of theorists that study atonal music as well Um, so they figure out how how the piece of music works when there maybe isn't some home or some tonic uh, to pull us and and ground us. And there's lots more other than that. Awesome. Um, I'm interested to find out more um, on the Shankarian style of theory that you mentioned. Would uh, you be able to go a little bit deeper into that and kind of explain? Sure. So Shankarian analysis is a reductive analysis, which takes... Um, it, it takes all the notes on the surface of the music and kind of strips away some of the embellishments and the embellishing chords to get at the heart of the music. And it has, it has its own notation system. So we use like open note heads with stems, closed note heads with stems, but they don't mean a half note and a quarter note. They mean, um, like this is a higher level of significance or a lower level of significance. And then notes that don't have a stem are even at the lowest level of significance. And then we draw slurs to, um, to connect things together to show how the music is moving. And it's, it's a lot of fun and I really enjoy it. And it helps me to understand connections between movements of a multi-movement work as well. And it also helps me to, to tell or to understand how music play, uh, tells a story as well. Is there an objective mood usually to uh, stories or do you find that a lot of times when you go through the process of reducing a piece of music to what's important or not important, um, do you find that it's kind of up to the listener to decide? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I think for the most part, it's up to the listener to decide. But what I do is I find little musical motives or musical gestures that are repeated and developed throughout the piece. And I, um, if I'm dealing with a work with text, I can tell how those motives are uh are painting the text or telling the story of the text. If it's not a piece with text, then I have to make up my own um, opinion about what's going on and and the mood and the character and the story being told. Cool. Well, that's I think that's everything I had written um, and not written. Um, cool. So I, I want to thank you for uh, being on the show with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. I thank you one more time to Dr. Jenny Smith. We'll talk more about what she said later, and I hope you enjoy our next segment with Dr. Robert McClure. My name is Dr. Robert McClure. Um, I'm an associate professor of composition and theory here at Ohio University. Um, for background info, um, I have like my education was done. Uh, I did a, a bachelor of music at um, 
Bowling Green State University uh, for music education, actually, and then uh, University of Arizona for a master's of composition. And then I did my doctorate at Rice University in Houston for my DMA. Uh, before I came to Ohio University, I taught for four years uh, in China at, uh, the Suzhou, uh, at Suzhou University. And then my last year there, I was also a visiting professor in electronic music at Shanghai Conservatory. Awesome. It's great to have you on with us today. Um, and so this episode is about music theory. Uh, and so with that, I'm just going to open with a broad question, which is, what is music theor- uh, theory? <laughs> what is music theory? <laughs> So, I mean, I view music theory as a way to understand music. Like, you know, we we kind of have, you know, we have ways to understand language. We have ways to understand other concepts, and this is the this is how we are able to understand it. Without music theory, um, any sort of music theory, uh, music can kind of seem magical, and when you know music theory, I think it's even more so, uh, because you, you see the craft and, um, the intention of a master artist applying their craft or, well, applying, you know, applying their trade or their, um, you know, their knowledge or their creativity or something like that. So music theory is the way that we can understand music, like just broadly, I think. Awesome. And I've, I've been reading a book by uh, Susan Rogers, who is a princess sound engineer and now works at Berkeley. And she talks a lot about the switch that happened when music, especially like contemporary, like recording music, um, went from using like magnetic tape machines mm-hmm. to then like digital audio workstations like Logic, what I'm running this uh, uh, interview off of now. Um, and she uh, talks about how when recording became easier, um, recording artists and audio engineers and producers were able to focus more on the feelings that music generates um, rather than the um, gestures that you have to go through to make things sound. Um, and so I was interested to hear your take and how theory kind of plays along with that and if you feel like people in the like current modern age of recording, if they use theory or how that music theory incorporates um, into creativity because I feel like a lot of people might see it as something that's more um, stuffy and like that's something you learn in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to hear uh, kind of your take on all that. Yeah, so as uh, as a composer, um, I use, uh, for, I mean, first of all, I teach music theory every single semester, but I also use it as a creative artist, as a composer. And um, I like to, in many ways, I like to reverse engineer theoretical concept, concepts to be compositional tools. I think that's very useful. And um, it's, it's just a way to like get, uh, get your own creativity flowing. I mean, it's like, you know, when you sit down at the piano and you see 88 keys in front of you and you realize that, oh, I can do anything, that's paralyzing. So if you have something to limit you, to guide you, a theoretical framework or some sort of system you're, you want to explore or be in, that automatically reduces the number of options you have um, as a creative artist. 
And that's only going to help you. I know ever like a, a, many people who aren't <laughs> who don't uh, actually engage in creativity but look at it from the outside are like, "Oh, you should just be free. Everything should just be free. Go where you're, you know, whatever takes you." But the reality is most of the times uh, most of the time complete freedom leads to inaction because you're faced with choice overload. So theory is that um, knowing, knowing and applying theory is a way where you can limit your choices and get to, um, you know, get to a point where you can be creative within a certain box. Like, you know, no one wants to be like boxed in or put, you know, limited or whatever. But in, in, in reality, I think it's very useful for, um, the process of creativity to have those limitations placed on you, even if you're placing them on yourself, um, and you know, sometimes you get to a point when you're, when you're composing or you know you're you're working on something, and you realize like, oh, that box doesn't quite fit anymore. Well, you made it, so you break it. You know, like yeah. you can. But it, at least to start, I always like to have some sort of theoretical framework to be in, whether that be you know, um, different scales that I want to use or different, uh, a different palette of harmony that I normally use or like, you know, tw like 20th century set theory or, or something that something else that I might've come up with, you know, that's based on something else that I learned in school. Like, I, I think that theory is just so important to creativity because it, again, it gives us, it's a language we use to understand music and vice versa. It's a, it's, a way we can create music using that language. Awesome. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, I took a, a, an English course and the professor said uh, best way to start is just do a crappy first draft. Mm -hmm. um, and I, obviously um, we have like English as the framework, um, but just getting like ideas down that fit within a prompt or I guess in music's case a like set of scales or trying to evoke a certain feeling mm -hmm. um, definitely helps get like the creative juices flowing and um, to me it's kind of like a, a springboard that you could jump off of. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to go ahead and move to the next question here, which is how do you notice music theory impacting you um, and how you connect to songs? I mean, because I have a, you know, I wouldn't say it's the uh, the absolute most advanced uh, theoretical knowledge. Certainly, there are people out there that know more than me or know other things than I do. But I would say I have a decently advanced um, understanding of music theory, and I find myself because I, you know, I I love pop music. Um, listen to it every single day, constantly am searching for like new bands, new artists, new, new, whatever. And the ones that I'm drawn to over and over again are the bands and the artists that actually know what they're doing harmonically. Mm. You know, there is something to be said about being a great lyricist. There is something to be said about being a great singer or guitarist or drummer or whatever. However, those, you know, like the people that are kind of doing talent for talent's sake, I'm never really impressed by them. It's like people that, you know, can noodle on a guitar or, or, you know, I'm, I'm a, I was a percussionist. So, you know, the, the people that can like really, you know, play really fast on the drums or whatever, I'm just not really impressed until 
they do something like very savvy and interesting harmonically or they do something very savvy and interesting rhythmically like um changing our perception of where a beat falls or like you know introducing polyrhythmic um polyrhythmic textures where it's like they can dip into and out of that seamlessly and our our perception of music changes in that but theirs never does mm. you know our perception of the beat or a perception of rhythm or something like that they they can go to all these places and make us feel things instead of just like oh wow they can play really fast yeah like that's never impressive to me and the same is true for you know songwriters like if they can i was um so there's this i i'm also a big fan of tiktok and um uh, I, ha I follow a lot of like uh, content creators where like they use music as part of their content. Mm -hmm. And there's this one creator, Tom McGovern. Um, and he writes these stupid, silly songs. But theoretically, they're really interesting. He's using, he's using plenty of chords that aren't just like one, four, five, one. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like those are the ways that having a, having a, knowledge and appreciation for theory it affects me as a like music consumer because i'm constantly drawn to the people who like i said they know what they're doing and they're doing interesting things harmonically melodically whatever they're not just sticking to tonality they're not just sticking to you know uh pentatonics um in in melody because they know like oh that works you know i like i really like the people that kind of go out on a limb go out on a ledge and um and push the bounds of what popular music has been in the past for me that's like radiohead bjork plenty plenty oh the this band that i love from new zealand the beths Mm. Um, you know, they do like really, really interesting things harmonically. And that's what I'm drawn to. So like having that theoretical background makes me find and appreciate other artists that maybe don't necessarily have the same draw as, you know, like the, uh, you know, top 40 or, or whatever, but they do something that I find very interesting. It kind of reminds me of a clip that I saw on TikTok of uh, Harry Kornick Jr. He oh, yeah. does, where he plays the song in four four switches to five yep. four, then everyone starts clapping on the different beat. Yeah, um, just brilliant, brilliant yeah. that he came up with that in the moment. Yeah, you know. And there, I there's another Harry Kornick um, thing. He he was a judge for I guess like maybe American Idol or something. Something like that. And uh, I just saw it recently. I'm sure it's from a while ago. And uh, the other two judges were like just enamored with this singer and he's like i'm i'm not impressed by the what he called pentatonics basically just being able to shred vocally and you're only doing the five notes and it's like you know sometimes like if you put a um if you put auto-tune mm -hmm. on on someone and then they just like you know do a yell or a glitz that's what it sounds like you're just running up the scale and like noodling through it and I feel the same way. I'm not impressed by that. It takes technical skill, obviously, but that's not interesting. And I think he, what he was looking for was, you know, a deep understanding of the song, a deep understanding of music, and he wasn't getting it from that particular contestant, so they didn't move on. 
but yeah. Um, so kind of bouncing off that, how do you feel that theory can express emotion in a song? I, I, I don't necessarily like having an, let's say that you are, well, I'll, I'll put it on myself. I'm a composer. So I know that certain types of, uh, harmonic motions or bass like bass motions, that's going to give me a certain type of effect. Okay. If, and, and I, I think I run into this with students a lot. Uh, because they're like, oh, I want this, you know, I, I want this song to be like dark and, and scary, but all they've ever written in is like major and minor scales. And it's like, oh, that, that's not going to do it. If you want this to be dark, we got to go for some, something with some real dissonance in it. And, you know, it's basically you have theory gives you tools in your toolbox as a composer. And I, th I think a lot of people come to music composition, they want to be a film composer, mm. right? Because that's how, that's how everyone like, experiences music in the, very, uh, in the very beginning. Either they play in band or orchestra and they know that music, or they love film music. Because, you know, that we all watch films, we all listen to the music. I mean, John Williams is great, you know? There's no, mm. way, there's no, no question, of course he's great. He's written some of the most like uh, iconic themes of the 20th century in film music, and uh, you know everyone, everyone comes to school and they're like, "Oh, I want to be the next John Williams." But all they hear are the main theme of Star Wars. All they hear is the main theme of Indiana Jones or Superman or Jaws or, or whatever. They don't hear when John Williams gets crazy, and like. In uh, in Star Wars, in The Emperor Strikes Back, um, the part where Luke is trapped in the ice cave and whatever, mm -hmm. if you go, like, just listen to the music. Turn, like, don't watch the, um, don't watch the actual film. And you will hear some of the most avant-garde, out there music you have ever heard. And this is the same guy that's like, oh, it's, you know, like, 151. Like, I mean, come on. So that's, and, and I tell this to students because it's like, being a film composer, or being a composer where you are not serving only your your own desires, you have a you have a director, or you have like a choreographer, or you you have someone else that's like in on uh, the the production of whatever it is. Uh, if you have that, you have to be able to go wherever they need to go, which means you have to have a lot of tools in your tool bag, which means major and minor cannot be the only thing that you know. You, and music theory gives us that. It's able to, you're able to learn a lot. You're able to understand music from a wide, wide swath of, um, you know, styles or techniques or whatever. And then when you go into that situation, they're like, oh, we need this to be like kind of post-minimal John Adams-ish. Or we need this to be kind of like, you know, a little bit like Thelonious Monk in the, you know, in the 40s or whatever. We need this to be whatever. You, as the artist, you have to be able to go there. And the only way you get to go there is having a deep, deep understanding of how pitch 
and rhythm work in music. Hmm. Interesting. So it's, it's kind of like the culmination um, of all of the parts in music and then put into, um, like you said, a tool bag. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we talked a lot um, about uh, different things that uh, really like impresses you with music theory, um, but it kind of got me interested in what kind of is like a pet peeve or like something that you notice people get wrong all the time about music theory, but like a misconception or just something that is technically um, just incorrect that kind of like grinds your gears about theory. <laughs> Um, I would say it's, uh, especially with, um, with students who are studying music, I would say it's how little they think they're going to use it in their life Mm. if they are a musician. Um, and I, I'll say this, I think aural skills, being able to hear something, being able to sight read and sing something, being able to dictate something, I think at least in, in my opinion, those are the most important things you learn in music school. Mm. Absolutely most important thing. It's for you to be able to hear something and just know what it is. And I'm not talking about perfect pitch. I'm talking about, because okay, I don't have perfect pitch. I'm talking about a, conce- a contextual understanding of how music works. Mm. So that, you know, this applies to composers, it applies to music theorists, it applies to music historians, it applies to performers, it applies to music therapists. When you are able to just hear something and know, oh, oh, that chord progression is one, six, four, and then it does this weird thing. It goes like kind of a five of five, and then it goes to, it's supposed to go to five, but it doesn't there. It goes to something, if you can just do that in your head without ever needing to like look up tabs or lead sheets or sheet music or whatever, Mm. that's like, that's as close to magic as you can get, you know, because you have that contextual understanding of how, how music should work. And then you can leverage that against how it's actually working, um, in what you're listening to. So I, I I think that's the biggest thing that is a pet peeve of mine, how little they how little students um, at any level think they will use music theory when in reality it is uh, as a musician if you have it if you have that skill oh my god your life is gonna be so much easier (laughs) so much easier as a musician I mean we're talking about like if you're if you're a music education student your your error detection in um, you know in ensembles is going to be off the chart because you know what it's supposed to sound like you know, you can look at a score and be like, nope, that's an error in the score because I know this should be a B flat major chord and that's not an F, that's an F sharp. That is wrong. You know, so yeah. you're you're able to do so much more because you have that contextual understanding of music. Yeah, I know this, I always thought it was super crazy, like sitting um, in band all the way since uh, like I joined in fifth grade, the directors would be like, oh, uh, trumpets, you're playing this sharp or... I could tell that you know this note is wrong, or that that's a misprint in your score. Mm-hmm. That's how it's supposed to be. And I was just always like super one impressed, um, but just like dumbfounded on how um, someone gets to be like that. I guess it comes down to just time, and then obviously uh, training. Um, like most things, yeah, time and training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, unfortunately, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah, that's how it happens. 
Um, cool. So kind of circling back to our uh, question set, and this is going to be the last question we're going to have time for today. Um, but what different subcategories of theory are there, and how do they each play into music? Obviously, I know it's kind of a, a bigger um, open-ended question, um, so just... Uh, answer it how you best interpret it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, different subcategories of theory. I mean, I honestly don't really think about music theory in terms of, like, subcategories. I mean, certainly there are... Certainly there are things, there are, like, theoretical frameworks or theoretical techniques that serve certain types of music better. So, as an example, um, Schenker. Uh, like Heinrich Schenker was a music theorist and he came up with this idea that basically all, all the greatest composers ever, and there are 10, they're all white, they're all dead, you know, um, they're all from Europe. Most, almost all of them are from Germany that they all did. They, they, their music could be boiled down into essentially like one, five, one at the most basic level. And, um, he he determined there. Oh, there are these other substructures that uh, you can use um, to basically say, like, here, here's the evidence. They all do this, and thus they are the greatest composers ever. It's total BS. Okay. However, the study of Schenker has been a major thing. You know, Schenker's um, uh, his techniques. And, uh, you know, his style of notation and style of analysis and all that kind of stuff. It has been a big thing, especially, I would say, in America in the 20th and 21st century. The thing is, Schenker only really works for classical era, romantic era music. Hmm. Um, and it, it, I mean, if you're, if you're looking to boil that music down into a certain um in into into shanker wow you can really do it it really explains that well as soon as you apply to sh apply shanker to anything else it doesn't work anymore hmm. it's complete nonsense vice versa uh the the majority of the 20th century uh you could analyze music uh, I mean, <laughs> depending what music you're analyzing, but you could typically analyze music in terms of like set theory, hmm. you know, and um, talk about like, oh, well, these particular sets are being uh, made to go through like different uh, transformations and uh, inversions and, and, and everything. And because perhaps the composer was thinking about that while they were creating the music, it really works to explain that music. However, if you apply set theory to Mozart, you're not going to get that much because it's all zero, three, seven trichords or, or something like that. You know, it's like, so it's less about like there are subcategories of theory. They're just tools that explain certain types of music better. Hmm. You know, like set theory is not going to do much to help you understand a Charlie Parker solo, but there are uh, music uh, music theory tools that can help you, you know, determine that. So it's it's less about subcategories and more about just like, well, that works for this. It doesn't work for that, you know. So again, as a you know, as a as a analyst, as a as a creative individual, the more of those like different tools you have, 
the more different types of music that you're able to understand. Yeah. Like uh, you wouldn't use a hammer to pound in a screw, you'd use it for a nail. Yes. I mean, if, uh, if, if the only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that's what it yeah. turns out to be. And, you know, you were talking about pet peeves before. That's another one for me. It's like, oh, well, this this music doesn't uh, conform to what I know of chords and scales. It must be bad or something like that. It's it's not about that. It's it's literally like that music wasn't written with that those techniques techniques in mind. So you have to learn a new technique. You have to get a new tool. That music is a nail. We need a hammer. This music is like, I don't know. I'm, the the tool metaphor is breaking down for me right now. <laughs> this is a, this is a screw. We're you know we need a a, a a drill press or something like that for for this particular music because that's how it's that's how it's held together. I mean, certainly there are you know there are plenty of people who have theoretical ideas and they write papers and people study them in school. Um, the, the danger is just assuming that there's one, there's one thing that can explain all music. It just doesn't work that way. Hmm. You know, it's like, it's like the, uh, the, what is it like unified field theory or something? It's like, you can't, you can't rationalize gravity versus, um, Man, I cannot come up with the word. That's disappointing to me. That that word, the, the very small, the physics of the very small. <laughs> there isn't one single theoretical tool that's going to explain them all. There are a lot. Gotcha. And the more you know, the I think the richer your life in music is. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's all we have time for today. Cool. Um, thank you so much for taking time to meet with me today. All right, thank you once more to Dr. Jenny Smith and Dr. Robert McClure. There's a lot of interesting things that they both said about music theory and how it relates to us connecting to music. I particularly enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Smith about the Shankarian style of analysis, which she said was a reductive style in which uh, you take a piece of music and strip it down to what its most essential parts are. And when she was first talking about this, I had two initial reactions. One was, oh my gosh, that's so cool. It can help people understand what's happening behind the scenes with music in a more technical and intimate way. Or would that decrease the level of power and mystery that music can hold over someone? And to elaborate on that, when you look at something more closely, it, to me, at least becomes less... Uh, cool. Um, look at it more objective instead of subjective. And music at its core should be subjective. So would looking at it that closely and that um, intensely kind of decrease that? To Dr. Smith, it didn't. To her, it allowed her to kind of uh, fully immerse herself in what was happening. Uh, whereas to me, I feel like looking at something that closely would almost distract me from the grandeur of it. I would get lost in the weeds of it and not be able to look at it for what it is. I would start looking at it in parts rather than one full thing. And then in my interview with uh, Dr. McClure, he started talking about um, how 
you can't compare uh, gravity to, and then what I think he meant was uh, quantum mechanics, something so big to something so small, and how different those things can be. Uh, and with that, my question that prompted him to say that was, um, what different types of theory are there and what can they be used for? And he used that as an analogy to say that no one theory can fit any one theoretical problem. And that every type of theory, whether it's Shankarian theory, whether it is Western theory, whether, whether it is 12-tone uh, um, like Schoenberg theory, you need a difference, you need a variety of things to fully be able to comprehend what's happening in a piece. And now I know that the average listener, uh, both to music and to this podcast, um, is not going to sit down and think about the modes that a piece is in um, or uh, different things like that. But when you know those basic theoretical things, it not only helps you uh, visualize what is happening, but it can help you connect to the essence of the music and can, it can help you appreciate the uh, skill and the knowledge and the craftsmanship that is required um, when producing songs, writing songs, uh, or playing songs. And I think that it's really important to remember um, that no matter how simple a song may seem, there's a lot going on underneath the surface, and that um, behind-the-scenes work is what theory explains on, and it's, it's what music theory is meant to do. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to the podcast today. Definitely there are three uh, other episodes besides this one, and there is a fifth and final episode coming soon with a uh, very special guest, Dr. Susan Rogers. Um, I've talked about her work before on this podcast, and I'm so very excited to be able to meet with her and have a conversation, um, not even just for the sake of this podcast, but for the sake of, you know, meeting with someone um, of that uh, status. Um, so definitely make sure you tune in to the next episode uh, to my conversation with her. Uh, thank you so much again, and I hope you've enjoyed.